Welcome to Council 4 Unplugged. This is the podcast of our Council 4 AFSCME Union. I'm Larry Dorman, and we are proud to represent 30,000 working women and men throughout Connecticut's public and private sectors. And we have a special topic to talk about today on Council 4 Unplugged. It's worker safety. And we have two experts, and I'm really pleased, and this is an overdue program, um, to focus on worker safety. And our guests today are Steve Schrag. He is the co-chair of the Connecticut Council on Occupational Safety and Health. Welcome, Steve. Good afternoon, Larry. And our other guest, also happy to have her, is Pam Pachalski. And Pam is the project coordinator with Connecticut Caution. Thanks for joining us, Pam. Thank you so much for having us, Larry. Uh, As I say, I think an overdue um, and underappreciated topic that needs to be discussed more, and that's um, job safety and health. And I couldn't have two better people to talk about it from a a state perspective as well as a national perspective. So, Steve, I'll kick it off. And, and Pam, you should also chime in. Tell us a little bit and tell our listeners uh, about Kinetikosh and a little bit about your history. Um, I'll be happy to, but before I do that, I want to take a moment and remember somebody who died on this date, 2005. His name was James Hull, and he was a front-end loader operator. He was 26 years old, and he died in Colorado because he was crushed to death because they didn't have the proper markings and barricade to keep him out from being under where rock was being cut. And the reason I mention that is because, unfortunately, there's every single day of the year we could find another version of James Hull. Kinetikosh was started in 1980, 1981, and it was started by people at the Yukon Health Center and the UAW uh, because they were concerned about making sure that workers get protected. And uh, the job was to try to educate workers about how to, what the hazards were on the job and how and find ways to use the new OSHA law. It was relatively new at that time. And... You mentioned Mr. Hall, and uh, there have been far too many um, tragedies. Um, and it's my understanding from the, the federal job statistics, Tam, uh, Pam, that every day 275 workers die from hazardous working conditions. Um, so, and, and countless more, I don't recall the statistics for um, occupational injuries and illnesses. Um, it's substantial. So, obviously, Connecticut has an important role to play in, in preventing those kinds of things. Yes, our our role is to educate workers, young workers, older workers. Uh, we've done a lot even with uh, workers returning to work after um, rehabilitation. And, um, and also we support injured workers who unfortunately have uh, had a, an injury or illness due to um, a workplace situation. Yeah, and just to clarify those statistics, in 2017, which is the last full year for which uh, the numbers are available, uh, according to federal OSHA, and these numbers are compiled by the AFL-CIO, 5,147 workers were killed on the job, and an estimated 95,000 died from occupational diseases. Uh, can both of you talk, we don't have to get be too grim about this, but what are some of the causes of occupational fatalities and, and what are some of the trends you're seeing on the occupational illness and, and disease side? Well, uh, typically, I believe with uh, construction, the, uh, the f- um, what are the four 
I, it rolls off your tongue. Focus like four. Focus four, yes. Right. So it's basically, as, as Pam is saying, in construction, there's many fatalities falling off of roofs, things falling on people, like what happened to this James Hall. His was in a uh, mine, but it's the same thing as we all saw, you know, back in 87 with Long Beyond's Plaza here in Connecticut. Other kinds of construction incidents like clean energy in 2010, where six workers lost their lives because of an explosion here in Connecticut. Um, the kind of reason, what those 5,000 uh, injuries, those fatalities are from traumas, are from things like that. They also include things like shootings, workers who lose their life on the job because they're shot, like what happened at the beer distributorship here in Connecticut, like what happened at the Connecticut Lottery here in Connecticut. Um, and every year we find examples of that in Connecticut. There was a shooting in a store in Waterbury last year where a worker lost his life uh, doing his job. And probably even more, uh, there's even more illnesses mm. that have caused uh, worker fatalities, but they're not necessarily as easily documented. Because it takes years to play yes. out. Um, yes. And what are some examples, Pam? Um, chemical exposures mm. resulting in cancers. Um, the Recently, there's been some legislation for firefighters because firefighters get exposed to a lot of chemicals um, that are burning, which increases their toxicity. I think there's a lot of um, awareness about uh, worker injuries that are ultimately resulting in deaths because of the opioid epidemic. Workers are getting injured, they're being put on pain meds, they're sometimes not getting treated properly, mm. they're getting their pain meds cut, and then they're looking to the streets for for relief. For relief. And wow. we know what happens after that. Uh, it's incredible. I've known both of you for a lot of years, and, um, you know, this this never goes away. And, and mm. when you talk about opioids, there's just always something new and something pernicious that um, rears its head at the workplace and, and, and causes fatalities, injuries, and illnesses. You know, as, as Pam mentioned, you know, the issue about drugs, opioids, or any kind of addictions is not a new issue. We have, we have, we've looked at this for years when we did workshops on occupational stress, it would come up that workers face problems with addictions when they face occupational stress. How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, some workers self-medicate, right? And, uh, but, you know, when it comes to occupational illnesses, as Pam said, proving the connection between the hazard and the illness is very difficult to do. Uh, though last year, this year actually, we got a peek at that, a better peek at that in Connecticut. For years, we put together a list of all the workers who have died on the job as best we could, uh, using the ocean numbers uh, as well as going through uh, newspaper records. Well, this year we did a freedom of information request to both the State Department of Labor and the Connecticut Workers' Comp Commission. And in the past, they have not given us the names of all the workers who have died for various reasons. Hmm. This year, we were able to pry it out of both agencies. And what we found was more than 30 workers in New London, in the New London area, died from lung cancer. And they all worked at Electric Boat. So it's a, a more of a causal connection. You can see that the chemical exposures they had and where they work were very much connected. Proving those occupational illnesses, the number you threw out, 95,000, mm -hmm. has always been an estimate because proving the connections has always been very hard to do. Right. Um, they estimate more workers will 
die from having worked in the shipyards in this country during World War II from asbestos exposure than actually died in fighting World War II. I think the number of workers who have died from the recovery at 9-11 has already exceeded the number of people who died in the actual attack. And quite honestly, it was it bordered on criminal that the government allowed workers to enter that area where they were doing recovery work without requiring them to wear respirators. Because while that pile was burning, anybody who dealt with worker safety knew that that was the plastics in the building that were burning. And when you burn plastics, you're creating dioxins. And those workers were at risk from day two forward. Day one, you can argue about they were doing everything they could to recover people. But after that, there's no reason why workers shouldn't have been properly protected, and they weren't. And this statistic, excuse me, will not surprise either of you, and our guests are Steve Schrag and Pam Bachalski from the Connecticut Council on Occupational Health. The average OSHA penalty for serious worker violations is only $3,580, and the penalty rises to $7,761 on average for worker deaths. And there is only one Occupational Safety and Health Administration inspector for every 79,000 workers. So I wanted to lob those two statistics out because I think they tie into what you're saying. Well, it's interesting you make that connection because when I looked up James Hull, I looked at what the consequences were for him to die on the job. And there was, in fact, a citation issued by the Mine Safety and Health Administration. What's absent from that citation? Any fine. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I'm not a big fan of fines. Because who actually pays the fine? The CEO doesn't write a check. The corporation does, which means it gets passed on to other people one way or the other. Right. Um, I'm a strong believer that if you can prove an actual negligence on the part of the employer, somebody should go to jail. Mm. It's just like if I drive I drunk. Agree. If I drive drunk and I kill somebody, that's manslaughter. That's crime. Why is it not the same when a worker loses their life on the job and don't go home to their family? As troubling as a lot of these statistics are, uh, on, the, on the positive side, Connecticut has always been, I think, ahead of the curve. It's not to say we don't have issues with regard to worker fatalities or occupational injury and illness, but thanks to groups like Connecticut, uh, Connecticut is what I call well, you know, a more sophisticated labor state. We tend to have better laws, better protections. So maybe you could... Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what Connecticut is doing to, to promote safe and healthy workplaces and what some of your projects are. Well, we, um, we do a, a lot of trainings uh, around the state, and um, mostly to, it's, in the past, it's been mostly to union uh, workers, unionized workers. But uh, recently, we have also been getting into uh, job um, centers that specialize in helping young people. Mm -hmm. So we've been really doing a lot of work with young workers and um, also workers that are have been rehabilitated and um, immigrant workers. In mm -hmm. the past, we've done, uh, when we had Eddie's project, we did a lot with migrant farm workers. And that was primarily uh, to keep them from getting HIV, but what ultimately happened is that Eddie was not only just talking to them about Eddie, Eddie is he was, was Eddie Sapien was one of our staff people. Right, gotcha. he was a he was a wonderful uh, wonderful connection to the many farm workers that come through the state. Interesting, um, and there are many. Yes, um, unfortunately, we don't have the funding for that anymore, and it was a shame because Eddie 
you know, he, he you know, he reached out to these uh, these workers not only uh, to do the HIV training, but also, you know, gave them a lot of uh, knowledge around health care and uh, mm. support and, you know, went way above and beyond. Yeah. Um, I want to hear uh, more about Connecticut, but just parenthetically, agricultural workers, as you both know, are among the few, very few workers mm-hmm. in the state who are unfortunately exempt mm-hmm. from labor law. They are not mm-hmm. um, allowed to organize. So I guess it comes as no surprise that they're mm-hmm. more vulnerable to the kinds of uh, um, things that are happening. Well, unfortunately, when OSHA was created in 1970, there were lots of groups of workers that were left out. Agricultural Mm -hmm. workers were amongst those that were left out. Mm -hmm. All public sector workers were left out in 1970. We're fortunate here in Connecticut that we have ConOSHA, which covers state and municipal workers, but many other workers around the country, 8 million public sector workers have no coverage. And I found out something interesting a few years ago when the Eastern Airline flight attendants went on strike they're not covered by OSHA. They're considered migratory workers, just like farm workers. Interesting. So they had no OSHA protections. There were some minor protections under the FAA, but none under OSHA. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were lots of compromises made in 1970, and that's the way legislation is passed, but there were a lot of people left out. As a matter of fact, one group of workers, I always remind my members that were left out, in 1968 when Martin Luther King went to uh, Memphis to help striking sanitation workers, what prompted that strike was Eco Cole and Robert Walker, who were crushed to death in the back of a sanitation truck because African Americans weren't allowed to ride in the cab. They were, when it rained, they had to ride back where the garbage was, and they were crushed to death. Martin Luther King was there to help those striking workers. In 1968, those workers did didn't have the right to join a union. They had a, they were a non-union uh, union shop state, exactly. and they had no public protections when it comes to OSHA. In 2019, those workers still don't have uh, a union shop state, and they still don't have any public protections on for when it comes to worker safety. Interesting, and you know these intersections always always occur. Uh, are there other programs that you uh, run or are running at Connecticut, Pam, that uh, you want to mention? Well, uh, we are very involved with uh, us, um, directing Worker Memorial Day. Steve has uh, been involved in that committee for a long time, and um, we have recently gotten involved with uh, organizing the student essay contest because we're trying to uh, ensure that young workers, young people, are aware of things before they get into the workplace. So um, mm. that has been a, a statewide project. Yeah, and I want to thank you for that. And and we should let our listeners know every year uh, across the country, actually, uh, AFL-CIO and other unions um, set aside time for what's called Worker Memorial Day. And it's, Mm -hmm. I guess, the anniversary of the enactment of of the Occupational Mm -hmm. Safety and Health Act. And uh, thanks to Connecticut and AFL-CIO, Connecticut AFL-CIO and other groups, we actually have a permanent memorial uh, to workers who have been killed on the job in Hartford at Bushnell Mm -hmm. Park. And now there's a component where you're reaching out to the schools and and having um, students submit essays. Yes, high school students. And um, it gets sent out to high schools and technical schools technical high schools across the state. Yeah. So you're, you're educating young people about yes. job place hazards. Yes. You, you know, Pam, you ought to talk a little bit about the, the forerunner of that and that what you did with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in, in 2011 because it was that that helped prompted us to, to do this essay contest every year. 
back in 2011, I was asked by uh, one of our very quiet funders to commemorate the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire's 100th anniversary. And um, so I said, okay, I'll do that. So I figured I'm going to do an hour-long program. We'll get maybe some, uh, some drama and different things. And then one of our board members, an injured worker who, um, who we assisted years earlier and who has now become an active board member, he got the idea for doing a statewide essay contest, which turned out to be a huge endeavor, um, as well as we did a very large uh, exhibit in the Capitol for a full week. And um, so we, we asked young people about how they would feel, you know, if they were uh, at that time, you know, a, a, a worker at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And um, we had an amazing response. And um, Steve always loved that idea. And a few years ago, he said, Let's do that on Worker Memorial That's Day. Great. So every year we, um, three years now? Mm -hmm. yeah, three mm -hmm. years. So we have um, the three winners. Well, it's been three winners. Maybe this year it might be more because people are, you know, we've been getting donations from uh, labor unions and uh, to, to fund it. And um, we have some great people help judge and uh, some good ideas for questions to get people these young people really thinking about health and safety in the workplace. That's fantastic. Mm. Um, it also gives you a sense of hope that... Mm -hmm. um, yep. Planting seeds. Yeah. That's exactly what our goal is, is to plant seeds right. so that these young, these young high school students get the sense as, well, you know what, we're lucky that we have some protections and we better fight to make sure that we have more. And actually towards that end, one of the things that Kosh does is that usually at the legislature we help support legislation to try to deal with specific problems. You may have caught the article recently that State of Connecticut DOT hired a company to do bridge inspections yes. who is the same company that was responsible for the collapse of the bridge and killing of six people in Florida. That same company also had problems in other places where workers have either died or the public has died or they had serious problems. So this is the reason why we had worked with one of the state representatives, Representative Morin, to put in legislation as we like to call corporate ethics, which is before the state of Connecticut gives state money to any business, check their references figure out what their, their track record is. The idea of giving money to a company that has, has such a bad record makes no sense. Why would we want them to inspect our bridges? They're not the only ones. There's been other examples, but they're the most recent. So we're going to be meeting with uh, Julie Kushner, who is the uh, co-chair of the Labor Committee, to look at a number of pieces of legislation, as well as to sort of do for health and safety what... Uh, uh, the uh, conservative groups have, and that is a sort of a clearinghouse of model legislation around state legislation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so we're working with Senator Kushner on that to draft legislation and be able to make it available to Kosh groups and other legislators around the country if they want to put a bill in. We'll have something off the shelf like uh, right. other groups do for other uh, for bad reasons. Ours will be right, for to protect right. workers. Well, that, it's uh, that's fantastic because the. the the sad truth is groups like the um, uh, 
Legislative Exchange Council funded Alec. by Alec, funded yep. by the Koch brothers and other groups are uh, clearing houses for how to bust unions, uh, drive down workers' wage and, and living standards, um, take away union rights. So it's really uh, positive to hear that you know, this is what you want to achieve. And um, Pam, I'll ask you this because Steve just talked a little bit about some of the legislative initiatives. It, it's something we kind of may take for granted in, in Connecticut, but again, thanks to the work of Connecticut and uh, unions and concerned workers and others, uh, workers have a right to know if their workplaces um, are hazardous and poisonous, and workers have a right to act. Um, that unfortunately isn't the case around the country. Yes, that is true. Um, I know in Connecticut we are we are a little more advanced than than many. Um, some of the southern states, I believe, and uh, right. midwestern states are, don't have what what we do. Here. Right. So I'm sure that as you develop this clearinghouse, I mean, those are the kinds of things that obviously. Do you, do you find when you talk to workers, particularly in perhaps in non-union um, workplaces, that they don't realize they have rights and that they have a right to know if they're being exposed to, say, toxins and that they have a right to take action or seek redress um, if they're being exposed to dangerous elements. Have you discovered that? There, um, some years ago, we were, um, we, I had a, a call from an injured worker and he's um, a green card holder and it's, he works for this nice small business that you'd want to support, you'd think 50 you know, a little under 50 workers. This owner is, he's, he's awful. He, you know, he, he doesn't care about his workers at all. And, and these, so he, this gentleman had an inkling that he should be able to have, that he should have some rights. But he had been injured. And, um, and then as we started talking, we found out he didn't have a health and safety committee which is, um, or that business didn't have a health and safety committee. And, you know, he, even though the place kept getting crowded, and that's why he got injured, is because the, um, it had gotten so crowded that the forklift actually knocked boxes right onto his neck. Mm. And, um, and so as we spoke, you know, he became more aware of, Yes, he does have rights, but he still didn't have a voice, he felt, because, again, he was injured. He wasn't supported very well in the workers' comp process. And um, ultimately, what, what we did is we got um, the workers' comp commission, who oversees the health and safety committees in Connecticut, to go in, and, um, and they helped them set up a health and safety committee. So I, it was working somewhat um, yeah. at one time. I hope... It is right. still, but... But that's interesting because, again, that is um, legislation that was passed in Connecticut mm -hmm. um, through uh, the efforts of groups like yours, mm -hmm. Connecticut. Well, we were, we were only at the unions. tail end of that. I mean, yeah. 1993, when they, when they passed the deform of the worker comp system, mm -hmm. right. this was the bone they threw to labor, yeah, was, quite frankly, mm -hmm. though we certainly advocated health and safety yes. committees. Yeah. I, I would be hesitant to take too much credit for that, because unfortunately, along with getting committees, we got we lost a lot of our rights right. when it came to workers' comp. Absolutely, yes. so yeah, that was uh, horrific. But one of the yeah. things that that Pam mentioned that we are a strong believer in that is trying to figure out ways to protect workers who want to raise their voice. 
that the fear of retaliation, the fear in the mm -hmm. workplace is overwhelming. Yeah. And it's true, quite frankly, not just in unorganized workplaces, but even in some organized mm -hmm. workplaces. And I'm always, I'm always saying that the, the two biggest obstacles we have to protecting workers are what I call the two fear factors. Workers are afraid to raise their voice. Employers are not really afraid of OSHA. And um, we have to do a better job of making employers accountable, and we have to do a better job of protecting workers who try to do that. That became very apparent uh, a few years ago. We did some workshops on um, workplace assault and violence, and um, it was predominantly with union mm, unionized workers. Yeah. And uh, it was actually machinists that we had. Mm -hmm. and. And Steve was upstairs with one group, and I was downstairs with another group. And he's like, hey, Bam, where are you? And it's like, well, we were having a session where these people were talking. And they were talking about all the discomfort that they had with supervisors and such. And, and it was like just just a flood of, of, of emotions and thoughts and, and such. And I was frankly, quite surprised but because, again, they're all unionized workers. Yeah, we, we did that conference on workplace violence, and one of the most amazing things to me is the broad spectrum of, of, of workers who face it one way or the other. Sometimes you think of it typically like maybe healthcare workers or public sector workers, but these, we had construction workers, we had, we had manufacturing workers, we had retail workers. In one form or another across the spectrum, whether it was sexual harassment, whether it was bullying, whether it was physical violence, whether it was mental, mental stress that they faced, all fell under workplace violence, and it was remarkable about the, the diversity of people who came to that and who we did a lot of follow-up with, actually, yes. as well. Yes. It's, again, quoting these uh, OSHA statistics and along the, this thread of discussion, workplace violence is now the third leading cause of death on the job. Women face the brunt of workplace violence, accounting for two of every three people who are attacked and workplace violence caused 807 deaths in 2017 and nearly 29,000 serious injuries. So certainly that seems to be the, not seems to be, is the, a new and rising scourge. Unfortunately, and as I said, it's the spectrum of things that when you, when you talk about workplace violence, it's both the physical attack and it's the psychological harassment that workers face on the job. Um, I work for I work for SCIU, and I work with our once upon a time work with all of our locals up and down the East Coast. Work with a local in New York. Uh, one of our seventy year old nurse was attacked by a forty year old patient on a regular floor. She was left in a coma. I met with eighty of my stewards in that workplace. This is a unionized workplace. I asked the 80 stewards, how many of you have faced workplace violence on the job? Everybody raised their hands. I said, how many of you have reported every one of those incidents? Four people raised their hands. Because, and the story was that if they reported it, very often they would get blamed for being attacked. Right, right. And uh, we can talk about legislation and the need for uh, workers to, to, to be advocates for themselves and for the cause. Uh, Representative Joe Courtney from Connecticut's 2nd District has been, uh, I think, a terrific advocate on this issue. Yes, he has. And earlier this year, he introduced uh, legislation to curb workplace violence, uh, specifically facing health care, social worker and social service employees, nurses, physicians, emergency responders, medical assistants, social workers. So he's sponsoring workplace um, uh, violence reduction legislation. 
And again, that's just something we shouldn't take for granted. It's the product, I think, of, of people like you and us who are uh, mobilizing and who are uh, asking our members to step up, speak out, and, and demand better from Congress, from the state legislature, from state legislature, from the employer community, and, and from our own unions. Actually, we um, I, I went to Washington to testify at an OSHA stakeholder meeting around whistleblower rights. And I knew I was that hearing wasn't going to be till one o'clock, so I knew I was going to be in D.C. the whole day. So I talked to people in Joey Courtney's staff. Who can I talk to? Who can I lobby on the Hill while I'm in Washington? So to make a long story short, I tried to talk to a number of uh, Congress people. I left a lot of packets. I didn't talk to a lot of people, but I did talk to the staff director of. Uh, Representative um, Joaquin Castro, who is the twin brother of one of the candidates for president. Right. And um, I talked to him about it. And what I had done prior to going there is I actually had researched and identified a fatalities in his congressional district. And that seemed to catch his staff director's attention that I had gone. To, I didn't just give him a packet. I actually had looked at what happens in his district. And the next week, he signed up on the Protecting America Workers Act legislation. I don't know if I had any influence on that. I'd like to think that my meeting with him had influence. But yeah. um, but we worked closely with, with Congressman Courtney, and we actually have met with uh, the, our new congressperson, Congresswoman Hayes, and she signed up for both the workplace violence legislation, the Protecting America Workers Act, which is to bring OSHA into the 21st century. And she also signed on to another uh, piece of legislation to deal with heat stress. Good. Within a, in an era of climate change, workers work outside and even workers who work inside face much more of a challenge with uh, temperature extremes. This has been a fascinating show. I want to thank you both for enlightening us. Pamela Pachalski, you are the project coordinator at the Connecticut Council on Occupational Safety and Health. Steve Schrag, uh, the co-chair of Connecticut. You're both doing a terrific job for Connecticut's workers. I applaud you, and thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you for your time. As always, thanks for listening to our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms by searching for Council 4 AFSCME. Our website is council4.org. My name is Larry Dorman, and you've been unplugged.